Welcome to the Ivy Church podcast. Hello, Ivy Church. Hello, Ivy Church. Welcome to Ivy Church. For more podcasts and information about Ivy Church, go to ivychurch.org. Welcome to our series about how we're learning to be supernatural followers of Jesus as part of a supernatural community here at Ivy. That's all about Jesus. What did you want to be when you grew up? I mean, when you were growing up, I imagine you had ideas. I imagine your parents had dreams for you too. When my kids were young, I had various dreams for what they might do. But as they grew up, it became less about what they would do and more about who they are, who they would become as they mature is the most important thing, whatever they end up doing. Now, God the Father has a dream for us. And in our memory verse for the year of transformation, we've been seeing in the Bible's book of Romans in chapter 12, God lays out for us a clear profile of his dream of a mature disciple. It's measurable, it's biblical, it's practical. And you and I can assess and grow in each of these things. So a quick recap before we focus on the second on the list today. So number one, what's our response to God? We surrender. We looked at that last week, how we surrender ourselves as living sacrifices to God. Number two, our response to the world is to be separate from the world system and its values because a church that's the same as the world can't possibly change the world if we're always being changed by it. Number three, How we relate to ourselves is a sober self-assessment. At times we all try and portray something that we're not, but God wants us to be who he made us to be, not comparing with anybody else, not comparing with other people. Our relationship with other believers is number four, is in communities, serve in love. We've got to serve and serve in love. And finally, When we face opposition, inevitably, or or evil in this broken world, instead of our natural flesh and blood response, what do we do? We, ah, power grab. We supernaturally respond by overcoming evil with good. We reach up to God and we get his resources for it. And today we're going to look at the second question of, of, now I belong to Christ, how do I relate to the world and its values? If you can do it, do it with me. I'm to be separate. Remember, this is the hand signal for that. It's the old Star Trek Vulcan sign to help you remember. And it feels strange to be set apart like this, to be separate. And actually now, as you look at the bottom of the hand and the palm and the rest of it, you can see the problem because as well as the fingers being hard to actually separate, right now, I'm actually still attached, aren't I? I have no choice right now but to live in this broken world where sin and evil and bad things and sad things happen. Jesus himself left a totally safe and perfect place, heaven, to bring us the love of God. And then he said, in this world you will have trouble. He was absolutely upfront about that. And we know the evil that he faced at the hands of wicked men, although he was totally innocent. But he said, to complete it, take heart, be strong, because I have overcome the world. You might have heard the phrase that Christians are called to be in the world but not of the world. That pretty much sums it up but how on earth does that work out? 
Last week, I mentioned three parables, stories that Jesus told us to help us understand life and how God is working in it. And for this week, the one that comes to mind for me is the parable of the wheat and the tares from Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 to 30. It says, here's another story Jesus told. The kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who planted good seed in his field. But that night, as the workers slept, his enemy came and planted weeds among the wheat, then slipped away. When the crop began to grow and produce grain, the weeds also grew. The farmer's workers went to him and said, Sir, the field where you planted that good seed is full of weeds. Where did they come from? An enemy has done this, the father exclaimed. Should we pull out the weeds, they asked. No, he replied, you'll uproot the wheat if you do. Let both grow together until the harvest. Then I will tell the harvesters to sort out the weeds, tie them into bundles and burn them, and to put the wheat in the barn. So here Jesus is telling us how God rules the world in this present age. You know, one day there will be no enemy. There'll be no bad seed growing up, no weeds, but that's not this field yet. And remember, the owner is good. He owns the field. He cares about the field. He's not renting it. And he only sows good seed, really good seed. People hearing this at the time will be nodding their heads as the story was unfolding. This is how life worked for them. You had a field, you put good seed in it. But then there's a twist and it would shock them totally when they heard it. Verse 25, notice, says it happened at night. Now, that wasn't because they were lazy. They worked hard in the day. And now, while they slept, something sneaky happened. Something secret. Something happened in the darkness. His enemy came and sowed weeds, uh, tares, darnel, it actually is, among the wheat. So God has an enemy, and later Jesus names him when he interprets the story. He says the field is the world, and the enemy is the devil, or literally the wicked one, who we know, Jesus said elsewhere, always comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So he sows the weeds. What's he doing? He's aiming to ruin the whole crop. It actually was a tactic at the time that was common because Roman law had a statute forbidding it. And the amazing thing is, you couldn't tell when this had happened that it had happened. Darnell would look exactly the same as the wheat until it was fully grown and the head matures. Now, naturally, the servants are shocked when they look at the field. How could this happen? It's awful. And they say, didn't you sow good seed? It's like when bad things happen and people look at God like that and they say, why did God do that? But their cannons then are pointed in the wrong direction. The enemy did it, Jesus says. And he later says, the field is the world that we're in right now. So this is a picture of the absolute mess there is in the world that you and I inhabit. God knows it's like that. He doesn't tell us the world we're in is perfect and holy and everyone and everything in it is good. This is the real world. Like, we're not just called to go off in sterile, holy isolation and build a monastery to be out of this world. This is the world we're planted in. We are lights in the darkness. Now the servants want to use their own wisdom to separate it out. This is good, that's bad. They want to just dive in at this point. And the owner doesn't confuse the wheat for the weeds or say the good is bad or bad is good, but he does say in effect, it's complicated. It's complicated. 
And later, when his disciples say, we still don't get this, he says, that's why I teach you in parables, which probably confused them even more. Because a parable can only go so far to help us understand before it breaks down. It won't tell us all we need to know. It won't answer all of our questions. But you know what? Listen, if we have that heart that sees evil, that sees darkness, that sees injustice and sinfulness, and I don't just mean in others, that's easy to see. I mean, when I see it in myself and hate it, do you know what that shows? While it's very hard to spot whether anybody else is wheaty or weedy, that hatred of the sin of the world, which the Bible says so easily entangles, is a really good indication that you are wheat and not a weed. Even though we might all look the same on the outside. When you look at the field and you say, what on earth happened? When you read the headlines like I do about children killing children, wars and bombings and families being torn apart or this year record drug deaths. The question, when you ask the master what's gone wrong, that shows that you are his servant because you're still shocked. And that's a good thing. When we get used to evil, it's because we're becoming evil. That means we are conforming to the pattern of this world. But again, it's not just the moral chaos around us or the evil in other people. As Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote, if only it were all so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? It's said that uh, Chesterton with a newspaper competition, which asked the question, what's wrong with the world? And he simply entered, he replied, dear sir, I am G.K. Chesterton. Now, of course, it's not all bad. God has also put so much beauty in the world, vestiges of the perfection of Eden that take our breath away at times. But that alarm bell inside that tells us at times, the world is not right. The world should be changed, that I'm not right and I must be transformed. That's a good thing. It shows we are made in God's image. It's the only way the world is ever changed. It's the only way God can start to change me when I admit it. And the moment we stop noticing that, feeling that, sensing that, the moment we stop being shocked or appalled, then we have to wonder if we're weeds. And not we. Because Jesus said, not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, judgment day will come, it's not yet. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and performed many miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. Matthew 7. Now, memory verse, as we started this year of transformation, doesn't ask us if we are weeds or we, but it does pose a really good diagnostic question about whether I am conforming or transforming. By now you should know it. Will you say it out loud with me? Romans 12, verse 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be 
transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. What am I going along with that I used to be shocked by? See, this verse is describing how God helps us change. So you can discover and be and do the destiny that God dreamed for you. Notice it starts with changed thinking. It doesn't say be changed by some external religious rituals and rules, but by thinking in a new way. It's not an external change because while in the end we can know a tree by its fruit over time, at the time nobody can know what somebody else is really thinking except God who says our responsibility is to take every thought captive and bring it in submission to Christ. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5 says that. That means we can and must control our thoughts. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, sow a thought and you reap an action. Sow an act and you reap a habit. Sow a habit and you reap a character. Sow a character and you reap a destiny. We know that's true, don't we? For better or for worse. And did you notice in our memory verse that phrase, the pattern of this world? Other translations say something like this world system. It's not talking about the planet itself, but the culture around that is constantly trying to get us to conform, to form our thinking by sowing images, ideas and ideologies in your mind and mine all the time. And we can be careful or careless about what we allow headspace. We can, do we think about our consumption of those things? But obviously, even if something tastes great, you keep on drinking poison, in the end it's gonna make you sick. And if I pollute my mental diet, that is gonna form my actions, habits, character, and ultimately my destiny. In the first letter of the Apostle John in chapter two, verse 15, he says, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That calls for separation, doesn't it? What do I love? If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. And then he describes the three things Satan can use from the world to blind us and bind us, just as it did over time with Samson, if you know that story. I've not got time for it. That's a sermon for another day. But but count them with me as we read them. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. Five times in two verses, the world is mentioned. And the Greek word there is cosmos. It's the opposite word to chaos. Chaos just means disorder. Cosmos means order. It means system. And did you notice the other word that's repeated over and over in that was a couple of verses, love. See, this is a love competition. There's a competition for love here between God and the world system. What the world wants to offer and use to entice away our love from God is number one, the lust of the flesh. That's all about what you feel. Number two, the lust of the eyes is actually greed, possession, materialism. It's about what you have. And number three, the pride of life is the passion to be, to be all about me, ego, to make a world that's all about myself where I am the selfish centre of everything. Chip Ingram summed up the three baits on the enemy's hook that is always floating in front of us as pleasures, possessions 
and position. Every temptation is a variation on one of those three categories. And you know, there's nothing inherently bad in any of them until they take over. Sex, salary, status. See, they're all the world's seducers to steal away our love from God and get us to bow down and worship anything and everything else except him. If you examine how the devil tempted Jesus in the desert, he used those three things. Although Jesus never fell, he was without sin. If you look further back at how the serpent tempted Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, exactly the same three temptations in different form. They're not original. They're not original to you or me when we're tempted with them. We're not the first or the last. That's why Paul wrote, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when, not if, when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure under it. I love that. There's good news there, isn't there? He says, yeah, there'll always be temptations. We'll have setbacks. We'll, we'll, we'll fall and mess up. We'll get it wrong. But whatever I struggle with, I'm not alone. And God loves me. And he's always faithful, even if I'm not always faithful to him. And whatever comes my way, there's always a way. There's always a way God can help me. I don't have to give up. I don't have to give in. Maybe that will involve me confessing it to him or sharing it with other people or, or getting counselling. Or See, I found this great power in not just reading and knowing the Bible, but speaking it out and using the word as a de defensive attacking weapon like Jesus did in that desert. Martin Luther said, you can't stop the birds flying around your head, but you can stop them making a nest in your hair. Why don't you take a moment now and think about which of those three areas you are most often vulnerable to. And what can you do to help protect yourself from falling? It's like, what, what guardrails can you put up? You know, you know why they put guardrails up on a bend at the side of the road? It isn't so you'll crash into them, of course. It's so that if you do crash into them, they are strong enough and set far away enough that you don't go flying off the cliff. What guardrails are in place in your life, in these areas of temptation. I'll finish with the story, I've told it before, about a rich man. He lived at the end of a very windy road, running by a cliff edge. He advertised for a driver. Three candidates turned up. He asked the first one, he said, you say you're an expert driver, okay, test. How close could you get me to the edge of the cliff along that road and I'd still be safe? 10, maybe, maybe six feet, he replied. The next guy, same question. He said, well, yes, I'm an expert driver. I reckon I could get you along that cliff edge all the way within four, three or four feet. You'd still be fine. The final candidate said, it's my job to keep you safe. So I wouldn't drive you on that road. John chapter 17, verse 15, Jesus prays to his father. And he says this, I do not ask you to take them out of this world, but to keep them from the evil one. When he's praying for us, it's not about isolation. He says, they're not of the world, even as I'm not of the world. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And then he says, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. See, Jesus is saying as he's praying, I don't want to take my people out of the world. I want them in the world. 
Send them into the world that we love, Father. The world we love so much that I've come to save it. But in that system, sanctify them by your truth, by your word. Do you see where the power of his word comes in? This transforming word. Part of my Bible readings this morning was God's word to me on this. As now we pray and discuss this. As we live in this messed up, complicated, weedy world. Proverbs chapter 4 was one of my readings how to not be conformed, how to be separate. This word from God transformed my mind as I read it and I aimed to live it out. It said, do not set foot on the path of the wicked or walk in the way of evildoers. Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn from it and go on your way. Above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it.